it's an honor to be here, and in honor of uh, Alan's suggestion and precedent, shall I say, for the future of education around the world. Let's take just five minutes to settle body, speech, and mind before the afternoon session, uh, bring our, all our energy back into the room. And I think I can reach this, just manually typeful, thank you. Just uh, manually, manually time it, and I will guide settling body, speech, and mind. So forever, wherever you're seated right now, please find a comfortable posture. And in order to find that, it's very useful to feel your own center of gravity, as though there's a very heavy weight at the base of your spine, like you're dropping a plumb line down into the ocean with an anchor. And somehow this image can help us to find center when we're not so centered. You don't have to imagine the layers of the earth, the earth's crust, but somehow feeling as though your own center of gravity reaches down, down, down into the center of the earth. And then let the rest of your body start to form around that. Feeling a length in the spine. Gentle, not forced. But there's an energy there which will lend to our vigilance and clarity a wakefulness in every meditation. And then release the breath all the way, holding nothing back, not pushing it out, not forcing it out just releasing it. And then receiving the breath again in its own good time. Since we've already practiced the first method of mindfulness of breathing, where you experience the sensations associated with the intake and outtake of the breath throughout your whole body, let this be your means of settling the speech in its natural state now. Letting the breath fill you, letting the awareness pick up Many different kinds of sensations. 
subtle movements associated with this gentle undulating breath, finding its own rhythm. And then if your eyes have naturally been closed so far, just try opening them softly, not too wide. Just finding where your gaze falls, a few feet in front of you. If you're seeing the back of someone's chair, that's fine. It's just whatever you're looking at. And feel that softness in your eyes not staring, not trying to see anything, just a gentle, soft gaze. And then become aware of the miracle of the fact you're aware. It's so basic, so natural. So awe-inspiring. Be sure the breath is still settled in its natural rhythm, even as you are simply resting in this awareness. Being awake, being alive. There will still be thoughts running through on the surface. All kinds of thoughts, images. But because it's a very brief time, just let them go. Rest in that 
deeper, more fundamental space of being aware. Nothing added. And check relaxation. Is there even a hint of tension building up? Let it go. Release. Go back into the ground, groundedness of your body. Your center of gravity plummeting into the earth. Breathing unimpeded. Your mind open and clear. Then as I sound the bell, watch very, very carefully that there's actually no transition. Your eyes might raise to full height. You might adjust if something was a little uncomfortable. But see if you can hold the same quiet stillness of awareness, even as we transition into a mode of speaking and listening. I don't even want to speak. <laughs> but I think this is an important exercise. Even as we relax, shift mode, be comfortable, the transition from formal practice into in-between sessions is essential to every kind of contemplative practice. It goes across, across all contexts, all types of practice. Because, as Alan mentioned before, continuity is of the essence. And so even in a state of retreat, as Ami mentioned, I've spent a great deal of time over the last two and a half years, total solitude, silence, only seeing animals for weeks on end, 
And yet there are clear delineations between sessions and between sessions. And so I often find the greatest measure almost of how a retreat is going is the clarity of the mind in between sessions. And so likewise, any practice we take up without the intention of putting it down again, it needs to become seamless. And I'm, you've probably all heard this before, but it can't be emphasized too much because as we know, our minds are unruly and they throw at us all sorts of things we don't expect. And it's so easy to be pulled away by that. And so for a long, long time, one has to deliberately keep planting the seed in one's mind, I'm going to remember my practice. I'm going to remember the continuity that I'm trying to develop. And only doing that on the cushion isn't enough. We very specifically build the skill while in a formal session. That's what bringing the mind back, and I know Alan will speak much more about this, the recollection that brings the mind back to its object, the introspection that watches how, how is this state of mind doing, breath to breath to breath, moment to moment meditation. But it's taking those same two skills off the cushion that really can flower in our lives. Uh, because whatever spiritual practice, dharma practice, contemplative practice we are embracing needs to keep being replanted and replanted and replanted until it is second nature. And that's really one of the, one of the many meanings of, of this Sanskrit word bhavana, to cultivate. In Tibetan, komba is very clearly to get used to. So this afternoon and tomorrow afternoon, there, there's an overall theme that I'll speak about, and then we'll hone down probably more tomorrow into what may be a very, a very familiar word to all of us, loving kindness. What is it to develop a heart of loving kindness? Uh, but to speak about that fully in the context um, of our theme, genuine happiness, what is it to find a happiness that is a, a, a wellspring coming from within that will never run dry? I'd like to put the very term loving kindness, the very practice of loving kindness, and all that it can imply within a, a broader context that's very specifically inspired by the Buddha Dharma, uh, but I hope will be f accessible to all of you. And I, I like to choose my words in such a way that if you have a different context, you can apply it where you are. Uh, and as Ami mentioned, my own very deeply dual, not just background, but continuous practice in both the Buddhist tradition and the Christian tradition, this isn't something I'm just trying to do to talk with all of you. This is something that's integral to my own life, is can I find the place where terms and teachings speak different languages, and not just different verbal languages, but different cultural, spiritual, religious languages. In harmony, but without losing distinctions. 
And in retreat, again, I will make reference to that from here to there, uh, there's a kind of a spiritual stripping that happens. So we had this quotation this morning of the fish finding itself on dry land. That's the way the mind in silence and solitude can be in the face of Mara's. But it's also just a very healthy part of the practice of going into solitude and withdrawing from our outer stimuli. Uh, to then also question everything we've even held de dear as our spiritual path. Because often to make the choice even to do a one day of silence, a, a full Sabbath, we usually don't start that until we have something to practice, until we have something we feel inspired. I want to spend a whole day practicing this. And of course, we hope to, for those of you who are brand new to meditation, we hope this weekend will be a start for that. Um, but it takes preparation. It takes preparation to even do a day retreat, much less a week or a month or more. But what I've always found when going into solitude is it's also an opportunity to kind of strip back to my own first principles. Because the way that it feels to study Dharma, to study deep philosophy, to study a contemplative tradition, when one's still very busy, as soon as you get in solitude, even the first few hours, let's say you can go away to out in the country a little bit or a retreat center, first few hours can be so powerful just to notice all the sounds that have just dropped out of your life. And that includes the buzz of the cell phone. Uh, and there's a freshness there that can be so nourishing to ask again all of our questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What do I actually believe? What is the purpose of my life? And so I raise that right now, not only because I hope it will be relevant for many of you, but also because every single one of us, no matter what path we think we've chosen, at a certain point we'll need to go to that space where none of the words work anymore. None of the umbrella concepts no matter how revered the tradition is, if we are to come and see for ourselves and know if this is true for us, then we have to be willing to strip away the traditional concepts for a time. And I don't mean forever. It's, it's a stage to strip away, to go in deep and come out fresh. And then you see the words again. You see the conceptual teachings. And sometimes they can just be ever more awe-inspiring when you see it with this fresh mind. <clears throat> so I, I'm very happy that we meditated a little bit in the beginning because I'd like to lead you all in a thought experiment now, uh, which isn't quite a meditation. But if you want to be meditating, feel free. Uh, this is like the, the what if. And even if things I say seem to you very familiar and like, yeah, that's what I believe, that's my worldview, I'd love you to hear it as a what if. Because as in the freedom from the four attachments, uh, the one verse by Satin Kung Nyubo that Alan quoted last night in his lecture, if there's grasping to anything, that's still not the view. 
And so even when we think we're grasping to our worldview, then that's not the view. So, if we recognize, what if we recognize that all hedonic pleasures, all stimulus-driven happiness, and it can be happiness in every sense of the word, we might mean it now, to enjoy a wonderful meal, to enjoy communing with a good friend, with family, all the things you can imagine that keep your life going. But if again, as in Alan's thought experiment last night, well, what if we had to do it for 24 hours straight, even 12 hours straight? Lamatsurkapa says, even if you had to sit in a chair and not move, for long enough, that would become very, very uncomfortable. But then if you were standing, then that would become uncomfortable. If you were walking, then that would become uncomfortable. Anything that is, well, <laughs> it's a much deeper thought experiment, why that's true. Why is it that the senses can't receive the same kind of stimulus in a continuous way and continue to get pleasure out of it? Uh, I won't go there now because it would go into the question of karma and cause and effect and a strange mind and so on. I won't go there. But just if it's true in our own lives, in our own experience, that any single hedonic pleasure we can think of would become painful within a certain amount of time. And just check in your mind. Do you have any counterexamples? Given our current state of body and mind, I mean, that has to be a given. Is there any sensory pleasure, even mentally stimulated, mentally generated pleasure, uh, given our current state of body and mind, that would not get old? much less become painful, even within a few hours, much less a whole day. And if it's true in each of our own hearts that we seek happiness, and if it's true, again, this is a big what if, but I'll just throw it out there for now, that the reason there is as yet no scientific explanation for how consciousness can arise from the matter of the brain, and there's a good reason for that because it can't, if it's true that consciousness arises from consciousness, and we can't find a beginning to that consciousness, and if it's true that consciousness is a fundamental constituent of reality as much as, if not more than, space and time, and if it's true that our very experience of pleasure, even when it is stimulated by, this, by sensory input, the pleasure is still coming from our minds and from our consciousness, then could this suggest that our consciousness ex itself is a wellspring of happiness? 
And furthermore, if we're not yet experiencing that ever-effulgent wellspring of happiness arising, even though we are conscious, how would our consciousness need to change in order that the floodgates open and a beginningless, endless kind of joy could arise? So these questions lead to a further question about what would limitless consciousness look like? And by using that word, I don't mean a certain esoteric meditation that has sometimes been given that name. I mean, what does, we speak of the fundament, uh, the, uh, the potentials the nature and potentials of consciousness. What are these potentials? How vast could consciousness be if we recognize that, well, if I can see you, there's not actually any line I can draw between where my consciousness ends and how it's embracing the visual perceptions that are telling me there's Susan there. But then if that goes to to the edge of the windows and beyond, and when we're in airplanes or high mountains, we see how far we can, the eye can actually see. And then with other instruments, realizing there's, there's not actually a set limit to where light can travel, much less where consciousness can travel. So what if something about the fact our consciousness is not currently experiencing a never-ending flow of happiness has something to do with the artificial limits we put on ourselves and what we care about. And so this leads directly into the topic, the teaching, the practice of what are known as the four immeasurables. And they can only be immeasurable if they are directed towards every sentient being, every being who is aware, every being who is conscious. And they can only be immeasurable if we haven't put any limits on the directionality to which our consciousness can flow in a certain way. So each of these four is oriented in a slightly different way, but they're so interconnected. And that's why I realized to speak about loving kindness, I actually need to speak about all four a little bit. So as an overview, and there's a, there are different reasons to give them in different sequence. But right now, I'm going to start with what may actually be easiest for us to generate, in our, especially in our current world where, uh, as Alan has many times said, we are doing a bizarre experiment on ourselves to expose our individual minds to a degree of news and input about world events that prior to the last 50 years even 80 years, was unheard of in human civilization, much less because of all the other circumstances, the speed at which events are happening and snowballing and 
vulcanizing, um, exploding. So we are experiencing in an unprecedented way the potential for compassion, the potential for seeing the pain of other sentient beings, humans and animals. And I feel like right now, within the last month, it's just it's unheard of, right? And yet we're there. And if our hearts are even a little bit open, we cannot help but feel the weight of human pain, of animal pain, of environmental pain. And so compassion, in its simplest definition, from a Buddhist context, and then it can be expanded, is the desire to alleviate the suffering of another living being. To see pain, to recognize that it is unpleasant to experience, to empathize with that because we know we wouldn't want to experience it, and the desire then to take it away. The aspiration to do something about it. If you see that it's possible to take that pain away. If there were absolutely no possibility of taking pain away, then it turns into despair. And we, we probably all felt quite a bit of despair. Right? Because we see a, an immense, vast, choking amount of pain that we can't take away. Or we think we can't take away. But part of the process of this cultivation of what are known as the four immeasurables, and then the, each of them turns into their great form, and then ultimately these become the aspiration and the path to enlightenment, to, to total awakening itself. As we follow that trajectory, perhaps the veils start to come down even to what we think we can't do. And we start to gain more and more vision first, prayer next, capacity later. But still, if we don't think we can do anything, then compassion, true compassion, can't arise. It can be despair, it can be empathy, it can be sympathy, but it won't be compassion. But if that stout-heartedness starts to arise, I want to do something, how can I do something? I'm willing to give anything to do something. <coughs> we won't be able to follow upon that compassion unless we genuinely want every single being to be happy. Because it's unpleasant for us to see pain, but the motivation to take that pain away will never be strong enough if we don't feel the tenderness, the care, the love for other living beings that will make us commit to, I want to take care of you. And it will be unbearable for me to see you suffer because I love you so much. You see the difference? We can, we can hold someone at arms or continent's length and say, oh, too bad that, they're, that that suffering is going on. How terrible it would be if I was in that situation. A lot of our reaction to, to news has to do with what if I were there. Um, but because life is moving so fast, it's easy to forget then when next week's news comes and then next month's news. And then we're kind of relieved, well, at least they're not talking about that one anymore. 
But if the love is real, we won't forget. We can't forget. How could a mother forget her child? But for the love to be sustainable, to carry us all the way to enlightenment, taking every being with us, there has to be joy. We can't get bogged down. We can't fall in the pit with everyone else emotionally. And this is back to the question of do we have a right? Do we even have the privilege to gain peace of mind for ourselves. And so we can't lose our own joy. For temporarily, of course, there are deep pits in the spiritual path. And we learn the fortitude to get past that. But the cultivation of joy, the recognition that joy is a part of the process of relieving suffering, has to be part and parcel of each day. And the more we can allow ourselves to feel joy, the more we can really enjoy it in someone else. Again, uh, with each of the four immeasurables, we have to actually allow it for ourselves before we can truly experience it for someone else. It's a, it's a give and take. It goes both ways. But the more we can feel that joy welling up inside ourselves, the easier it is to take joy in others. Envy. Competitiveness always comes from a sense of lack in ourselves. But when we feel full, when we feel satisfied, how easy it is to rejoice in the joy of others and then want them to have more. Because then it's a feedback. But all three of these, compassion, love, joy, empathetic joy, specifically the joy that we feel in correspondence to others and wanting everybody to experience it together. These will fail as a path to enlightenment for all of us if it's just unidirectional or semi-directional. Well, it goes for this group of people, but not that group of people. It goes for humans, but not animals. It goes for this planet, but not other planets. It goes for this lifetime, but not the past or the future. So any of those, those um, limits that we could put on it cancel all three of the first three. And so the equanimity, the impartiality that says door is wide open, 360 degrees above and below, all that is conscious is deserving of these aspirations. And then furthermore, may those, may everybody else who I want to take to joy, who I want to free from suffering, who I want to give every highest bliss I can, may they too be free of the attachment that would take them close, as it's typically said in the Tibetan, um, that would feel very close, uh, attachment for those who are close and aversion for those who are far. And that doesn't mean physical closeness or, or distance, because we know sometimes we get closer than we'd like to to those who wish us harm. But that would still be what in this terminology is an enemy, 
someone who wants to harm us. And so can one feel no aversion for somebody who wants to harm you who's this close? And can you feel no attachment for someone you love very much who's on the other side of the planet? This is equanimity. And in many ways, it can be the most challenging because all the others sound really good until you actually try to put it in practice with equanimity. So that was the overview. And I'm, as I warned you, I'm, I'm dancing around some of the traditional terms here. I'm not giving you a classic Tibetan presentation. There's, there's plenty of opportunity for that. And I have in your notes uh, Alan's book on, on the four immeasurables will have all the details you need. And I actually know also, Ami will announce, there's a course that hosted by the Diamond Light uh, Sacramento group on the four immeasurables that's already begun and will continue. So, or is it beginning this week, I think, yeah. Uh, so, I don't know, I'm feeling radical today, so that's why I'm <laughs> dancing in different directions. Uh, but in a Buddhist context, why, why develop these four immeasurables? They're not an end in themselves. They could be, they could be, because huh, if we want to find genuine happiness for ourselves, actually, <laughs> Cultivating these four is a really good way to do it because we would become happier and happier and happier. But they don't end there. Because again, back to our what-if what thought experiment. What if you could walk down the street and every person you encounter, whether you catch eyes with them or not, you feel welling up in your heart a love greater than that of a mother for her only child. And so spontaneously, if you see the person limping, if you see sadness on their face, if you see the signs of age, if you see poverty, just spontaneously, you want to do exactly what that person needs. If you can, you will do what they need. As spontaneously as a mother will pull her child out of a raging river. And even without getting to know the person, if you could catch, catch their eyes for one second, you would so spontaneously want them to experience the highest joy they've ever experienced and beyond, beyond what they can even imagine yet. You want them to taste infinite awareness, infinite wisdom, infinite ability to take care of beings. You want them to experience that. And it's equal, every single person you meet. You could be in Sacramento Airport, just standing on the, the exit to the, the trains, and every single person comes out. Spontaneous, spontaneous, spontaneous. Perfect love, perfect compassion. Perfect empathetic joy. But it would get frustrating if that was just an aspiration. If it was just a feeling in your heart. But you still had no idea what to do for them. You'd want to, but you'd be the mother whose, whose child is being taken by, away by the river and, if, and maybe you'd even try to go in and you drown. There's such a thing as situations where we want with our whole being to help and we can't help. 
So this is where the leaps of view for a time do require faith. I'm putting it as a what if now, but it's the reason for study. It's the reason for inquiry. It's the reason for hearing teachings whenever one can from someone one trusts as a worthy source of the teachings on the nature of reality. And again, I will try to use very broad terms. What if there is a dimension of consciousness that in a single instant can encompass all of reality? We call that divine. That's what's been meant by the word divine for a very long time. A state of consciousness that is perfect love. And this is maybe beyond even loving kindness as an aspiration that others have what they want. This is a love that is a creative love, a generative love that knows how to create what beings need. that knows the interaction of forces, energetic forces, mental forces, material forces, so perfectly that it could actually transform the way the elements are working in our world right now. What if there were such a state of mind? What if such a consciousness actually exists now? One, many, is there a distinction? Are we at a place where even the words one and many don't mean the same thing anymore. And if the potentials of our own consciousness are infinite, because consciousness doesn't have boundaries, because it's a constantly malleable, immaterial, qualitative, creative awareness. It's for us to find out, is my awareness like that? Is it creative? Is it illuminating? Does it have limits? Does it have a beginning? Does it have an end? And again, by the examples of great contemplatives through history, we have a lot of teachings that say, actually, in all those, uh, I forget how I asked the questions, but yes. In all those cases, yes. It is infinite. It is creative. It is generate. It doesn't have boundaries. It has no beginning. So yeah, it yeah, should have been no. It has no beginning. It has no end. And so what lies between my current experience of consciousness and that kind of an experience of consciousness. What lies between them? If I can't find any concrete roadblocks sitting in my mind, you see why if we associate our minds with our brains, it's suicidal. It's existentially suicidal. Because we've already put a roadblock on our 
the greatest gift we have. But if in reverse, we could understand the immensely, gorgeously complex system of our body and our energy systems as an ever more complex and maybe coarse reflection of the vibrations of awareness and the creative configurations of consciousness, then a lot of things start to make sense. And we have no limits. Because even when the configured consciousness of the human being we think of as ourselves right now, through circumstances, ceases to exist, the undercurrent of creativity, illuminating creativity, that is the nature of consciousness, that has no beginning and no end, there's no limit. But then in turn, that gives us the ultimate responsibility for every single one of our choices and every single one of our actions and what we cultivate, because we are planting the seeds for how that consciousness is going to show up later. And so why cultivate the four immeasurables? Because they are the doorway to actually experiencing ourselves as a state of consciousness that has no limits, that embraces all life, all sentient beings, and can provide for each one the specific, I want to call it nudges, mm -hmm. that we need. Every single one of us needs the nudges. If we have freedom, if consciousness is fundamentally free, I won't say always free, but fundamentally free, then there's no way that another consciousness can force us to be free or to be enlightened. So the transformation must come from within. But if, as I'm saying, leading you, challenging you, encouraging you to imagine, if there is a state of awareness, a state of knowing, creative knowing, that can help us, then the process of divine help can sometimes be no different from a conversation with somebody who changes your mind. And so what if our consciousness has the potential to reach a state where it could manifest in billions and billions of different ways, all at the same time, and show up as the friend, show up as the enemy, the apparent enemy, who's going to challenge somebody and bring them forward to a deeper state of compassion, forgiveness, loving kindness. Even enemies aren't real. Even enemies aren't inherently the way they look. <coughs> Enlightened mind would never harm another being in a way that would bring them down, that would bring them in the reverse direction from enlightenment. But some of the times we've experienced harm it may not inherently have been the intention of another being to harm us in the way we project upon them. 
So what if, uh, that was a, an aside, but I think an important one to clarify, how it is that the, the enlightened beings, the enlightened one, however we wish to think of it, singular or plural, um, could be helping us even in the apparently negative circumstances in our lives. But it's of course so easy to see in the, the direct manifestations of those who guide us along the path. But what if we could be that for others, for everyone, as long as it takes? No limits, no more death, no more being forced to lose our memories and start all over again? What if there were a state of stability so unshakable? that it was a stream, a source, a wellspring of happiness for every living being. Might that be a fulfillment of our own deepest longing? Might that be our genuine happiness? And so in a Buddhist context, this thought experiment in one or another form and the aspiration that it leads to is called bodhicitta, literally the mind of enlightenment. But in this context, mind doesn't imply that that's a Buddha. It implies it's a mind that is turning toward, aspiring for, yearning for. That state of enlightenment, that's that perfection of consciousness that has mastered mind and body, and therefore can manifest. And do the work you wished for the first day you tasted what immeasurable compassion feels like, what immeasurable love feels like. With immeasurable equanimity towards all and the longing for a joy that will never decrease. But in order for that bodhicitta to arise, this aspiration for total enlightenment, there's one step I've skipped, and that's personal responsibility. Flaksam namdak is the term in Tibetan. And it means the totally pure exalted motivation, exalted state of mind, exalted impulse. And it's totally pure, not just because it has equanimity and partiality towards all beings and all the motivations I've just spoke of, spoken about. It's because it recognizes, I'm not gonna wait for anybody else. This is my responsibility. And I think many of us, even if we've heard all of these teachings before, this can be the sticking point. Because for a variety of reasons, no matter how much we might have toyed with the concept of human pride, and I, I hope everybody's experienced just a tiny bit of human pride before, um, and I won't go into this as a separate talk, I actually got into in, in Sydney last month, but um, even low self-esteem is a form of pride because we're still holding on to ourselves in a certain way. 
But if we've had even the slightest hint of, well, I'm good at this, better than him, you know, that's typical pride, right? That, that needs to exalt ourselves in any way that has to push someone else to a different position. But the very fact that pride arises is in this is because we're comparing ourselves. We're seeing ourselves as just little me in comparison to other people. And there's some we admire and some we don't admire and some we want to be more like and some we don't want to be more like. And so there's a kind of a, a continuum or trajectory here of better and worse. But all of that's based on a false premise which thinks that the best it's going to get is what I can accomplish for myself in this life. And so then we want to jockey for position and, and try to get more money or better influence and things like that, even if we think our playing field is very, very small. So it's, you see what I mean about self-esteem, pride, afflictive pride, and self low self-esteem are, are hand in glove with each other. Because we're only getting the pride because we actually don't know who we are and feel bad about ourselves. And so we want someone else to make us think we're better because that'll make us feel better because actually we don't have any self-esteem. Uh, <laughs> I speak from experience. Uh, but to take the personal responsibility that will lead us to the state of an enlightened being of an omniscient being, of an all-loving being. The state of what it is to be divine, and in the Christian tradition this is called theosis, divinization, becoming gods. <coughs> Many people don't know that exists as the deepest contemplative tradition in, in Christianity, but it is there that the fundamental call from a Christian perspective is to be like God through the example through of Jesus Christ and through union with Jesus Christ. But it doesn't make it any easier for us just because Jesus is Savior or Son of God. It's something every Christian is called to that level of divine knowledge, action, love. But the thing, and now I jump back to Buddhist terminology, the thing that I think for most of us is stopping us from being able to generate this true aspiration for enlightenment is because we're still thinking of ourselves as just me. And the just me we see right now is not a Buddha and can't become a Buddha. Because we're associating with ourselves as limited, finite, mortal, uh, some things we know, some things we don't know, some things we try really hard to learn and can't learn very well. So how am I going to become a Buddha? Silly. So the personal responsibility to follow a path that will take us to the most exalted state of consciousness in existence actually requires letting go of all our attachment to who we think we are now. You see the juxtaposition of that? The goal, the aspiration is so high, but we'll think we're not worthy of it as long as we're attached to the little pleasures 
of thinking we are what our outer world says we are. And this comes right back to the juxtaposition of hedonic pleasure and eudaimonie pleasure. Because as long as we are engaging constantly with the pleasure that arises from sensory stimulation, but even more so just the world that is formulated by our interaction with the objects of the senses, we'll keep being fooled into thinking we're the person we see in the mirror, into thinking we're the person who we hear having a conversation with others, into the person with our aches and our pains and our indigestion and our sleepless nights. So how could this turning inward not just for our happiness, but for meaning. Lead us to letting go of the very person who needed the hedonic pleasure. And I'm talking radically now. I told you I was going to be radical today. See, I go back into solitary retreat next week, so I have nothing to lose. <laughs> and solitary retreat can be really good practice for what I'm talking about now, but it doesn't do it. Circumstances don't do what I'm talking about. They can be a good conduit. But if one takes into solitude one's low self-esteem, or one's competitiveness, or one's limited view of oneself, the solitude alone isn't going to fix it. On the contrary, we'll be the fish on dry land. But if in our daily life, right now, right here, today, we start dreaming, who would I be if I didn't have to be me? Who would I be if I just could let go 90% of the things I think I need? 10% keep a human body going. But 90% of the things I think I need can I let go and still love my family and still care for my friends and still be what other people need me to be according to the life circumstances I have? I'm not saying we all have to give up all the outer circumstances we have and go into solitude. I'm, I'm suggesting it's a shift in mind, it's a shift in consciousness that will have concrete effects because how many things are we doing that we don't actually need to do? because we're trying, even if we don't enjoy it anymore, to get our pleasure from outer things. But we can't actually gain the sustainable pleasure we need from inside, from our contemplative practice, meditation in, in particular, until we've practiced it a lot. It's not going to be a wellspring of, of bliss on day one, week one, or year five, much less year 30. For those of you who've been meditating a long time, you know it can always be a struggle. And the, the trajectory towards a sublime state of well-being and an ambrosial dwelling of, of bliss is not all smooth. There's an up and a down, an up and down. And you don't even realize, maybe, that you're at a different place than you were 10 years ago, 30 years ago.
But by making choices every single day, not to need everything we think we need, we can start to develop a fortitude that will take us through that trajectory. And so the withdrawal doesn't necessarily mean a withdrawal from our daily lives. It's a secret withdrawal. It's an inner withdrawal that is not engaging with things out of need for our pleasure to come from the outside. Because if we could find a dwelling place that sometimes may not feel ambrosial, But we know it's so deeply rooted in truth, in a pure aspiration, in a totally pure exalted state of mind that is the personal responsibility. I will discover who I am. And I won't stop until I have. And if that needs to take a hundred years, or a thousand years, or a thousand eons, I won't stop until I've discovered the ground of conscious awareness that never began and will never end and can blossom into all the sacred deeds of an enlightened being caring for sentient beings as long as space remains. Then we won't engage with our outer circumstances in the same way. And things won't jostle us as much. It takes practice. Again, back to continuity. Because you can feel a certain way even right now. I'm, I'm, I'm a hedonic stimulus, by the way. I'm speaking. And something's, and something's triggering. And it can be inspiring. And I know the, the awesome inspiration I have received by listening to teachers. Alan, among them. When you're in solitude, you realize even that's coming from outside if I don't have it inside. And so what is it that we take home to say, how can I become the wellspring of my own motivation? Then it's time to meditate. So um, find a comfortable position again, reset. And this will be a 24-minute session.
So release your breath. If you're in a different posture or position that you were, than you were at the beginning, find this space, releasing your body into gravity, finding your plumb line. your dynamic equilibrium. Letting the experience of the earth element gravity, connection of your body to your seat. Be a reminder of your relaxation. And then as you lengthen through the spine, allowing your body to shape gracefully Gently, beautifully, the balance of your own form around its center. Find a stillness from which you won't need to move. then that lengthening energy in which your body takes a posture of vigilance. Release the breath in its natural rhythm. especially feeling how it enters your lower belly. No control. And now eyes open or closed, whatever is more comfortable for you. Just become aware of being aware, quiet, still, clear.
attention just for a few minutes. Follow the first method of mindfulness of breathing that we learned this morning, known as Asanga's method. Watching the tactile sensations throughout the entire space of your body as they ebb and flow in conjunction with the rhythm of the breath. Of course, there are many sensations that are not being caused by the passage of air itself, but they are a direct result of it, all the way down to the tips of your toes, the tips of your fingers. And without planning for anything, without trying to impose a certain rhythm or pattern, let the light of your awareness fill your whole body and pick up what it picks up. The awareness stays broad and still, even as the movements register within that space of awareness. And then within this space of awareness that encompasses your whole body right now, find your core, your own heart center, not the organ of the heart, but your spiritual 
energetic center. For most people, it's behind the sternum, just in front of the spine, known as a chakra or a wheel in which energy travels in a certain pattern. But it's the place we feel naturally when our heart goes out to someone, when we feel strong love, even when we feel strong pain, strong compassion. Energy naturally flows there. So right now, just become particularly aware of the rise and fall of your ribcage. Making a lot of space, letting the breath fill your chest cavity. Not pushing, just being aware. And without actually visualizing anything, just start to feel a soft, sensitive place at the depths of your being. a sense of a kind of an orb of light appears, that's fine. But actually look. Look inside. It may feel very dark, very quiet. That's okay. In some traditions it's been called the cave of the heart. hidden cave within us. Gently, gently. And let the still, small voice within you Speak. Who have you always wanted to be? And maybe different answers will come. Just listen. Listen to the flood. What is your vision for your own highest fulfillment? Let your imagination run free without limits. If you are a conscious being, 
what would you be? Not limited by your picture of this life, the body you have now, the relationships you have now, just pure potential. Who do you want to be? Ask yourself, still with your awareness deep in your heart, and what would it take to become this kind of being? Do you even can you even imagine a path to it? Do you have the resources to even envision that path? Do you have any examples for it? Anyone else who has trod a path that you aspire to? Who are your role models? For genuine flourishing. And if anyone comes to mind, maybe it's not that you want to become just like that person, but they provide a glimmer of hope. They provide a template for the kind of path you'd like to follow to your own vision of flourishing, genuine happiness. And so from your heart, call upon that person those people, those figures, maybe, maybe not alive now, but you know enough about them to emulate, to admire, to revere. And call that presence to the space in front of you. Whatever your prayer may be today, ask this person to help you 
Provide what you need. Do you need teachings? Do you need personal guidance? Do you need financial resources? Do you need time? Do you need a conducive place to practice, to change, to transform? Again, let your imagination be without limits. Ask for what you need. And just imagine if this person whom you emulate had the capacity to not just give you everything you ask for, not like that, but could show you how to interact with reality in such a way that you'd notice where the teachings are, where the time is, where the place to practice is, where the opportunities are, where the companions are to help and guide you, support you. Ask for the blessings to notice what reality has in store for you. And see a ray of light coming from this person's heart to your own heart, just like a stream of light filling your own heart. with a sense of ease, a sense of trust, that you can find these circumstances if you wish. And then ask this person you emulate, you trust, to shine that light on you and show you how you might begin to transform within. To show you the mirror to the parts of yourself maybe that are the hardest to face. What is stopping you now? It may be a habit, it may be a memory, it may be a relationship, a way you view certain, a certain person or certain groups of people. What needs to change within our own hearts if we are to take even the first step today toward our vision? of genuine fulfillment. Try to be specific. One thing that from it within you know can begin to transform with effort, with vigilance.
And then what is one positive quality that you'd like to develop? Something manageable. Could it simply be to develop compassion, to develop loving kindness? And again, ask for blessing, strength, encouragement. See that ray of light pouring from your role model's heart into your own heart. Granting you the capacity to develop that quality within yourself. Continuously, without a break. And then imagine if you could progress along a path, a path to your own genuine fulfillment. What would you like to give? If you could receive the gift of enlightenment itself, what would you do with it? be specific. If you knew the actual nature of the elements, all the complex forces of our planet, how would you heal it like a doctor? If you knew all the forces of virtue and non-virtue at work in every person's mind stream right now, how would you encourage and cajole them to do virtue and avoid non-virtue? How would you attend to every sentient being, animal <coughs> and human? We'll continue a little further. How would you attend to every sentient being if you loved them more than a mother loves her only child? Envision your dream and see that stream of blessing of empowerment, of courage, of fortitude, ability, pouring from the heart of your guide, your role model into you, granting you right now, right here, the ability 
transform the world in all the ways you wish to. And then with a sincere aspiration, longing for guidance on this path to your own highest vision, call this person to help you, to stay with you, showing you the way. <coughs> and see that person as though they dissolve onto the very light beam from their heart entering your heart, remaining as light within the cave of your own heart. And just rest there, releasing all concepts, all visions, all aspirations, simply resting in the stillness of the depths of your heart. Gently release, expanding your awareness to the whole space of your body again. Returning to the experience of the breath. Surrendering in trust that this vision, this prayer, can continue to mature. That as your attention shifts, you will not lose the aspiration, even if you're not thinking about it actively.
we'll take a break now. Um, was 20 minutes ample before? Can we make it a little less, maybe? So it's uh, 3.38 now. Let's come back at five minutes to four. So five minutes before the hour. And we'll, um, let me think. I think we'll do another meditation. So refresh, we'll come back, we'll do another meditation, and then both Alan and myself will, will be open to questions. Okay? And I think there was a box or bowl somewhere for written questions if you want to add, add your question to that. Thank you. See you soon.